You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Amen. Our message this morning is titled, God's Guidelines for Our Freedom. God's Guidelines for Our Freedom. I wonder if you've ever talked to someone about becoming a Christian. And their main hang-up, as you talk to them, was that they really felt like, well, if, if I become a Christian, I'm going to have to give up all the fun stuff that I want to do and all the fun stuff that I'm doing. Maybe they felt like Christianity was too restrictive, being all about uh, the, the do's and the don'ts. You know, we talk to you know, people that feel like Christianity is a religion of do's and don'ts. Well, I've talked to several people like that. And whenever I do, I always get excited because I, I like to ask them after they say that, well, you know, so, so what you're saying is that you don't want to be a believer because you think God's going to cut off all your freedom. He's going to take away all your freedom. You want to be free, right? And they say, well, yeah, I want to be free. And I say, well, awesome, because God wants you to be the freest person in the world. That's God's plan for you. He truly wants you to be free. And I'll prove it to him by reading Galatians 5 and verse 1. Galatians 5 and verse 1 says this. I'll read it to you from the New Living Translation. It says, so Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. You see, God does want us to be free. Those who have trusted in Jesus Christ find true freedom. We don't have to live our lives by a list of do's and don'ts. We don't have to come up with lists of sins that have to be avoided because that's not our focus. (laughs) Instead, Jesus becomes a Savior who sets us free He becomes a friend who sticks closer than a brother, and he becomes a Lord who leads us. He gives us the good gift of the Holy Spirit who lets us know when we do something that's taking away our freedom, and we sense it. And as we practice the presence of God, brothers and sisters, we find that, hey, we can do, we we of all people have the most joy and have the freedom to do all things in, in, in life, true freedom. And the Apostle Paul knows about this. He's been living this kind of a free life. And so he's trying to explain this to us in our passage that we're studying today. If you pull out your outline this morning, you'll find there the big idea for our message this morning is that we're going to hear three guidelines to help Christians walk in the freedom that Christ has given us. And our first point on that outline is that we are free to escape from corrupting influences. We are free to escape from corrupting influences. Pick it up with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 14, where we read, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Verse 15, I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. So Paul begins there by stating a command for Christians everywhere to flee from idolatry. We have already looked at that in previous studies, so let me just point out that this is the very first guideline for those of us who are living to please God, those of us who have been bought with a price and realize how precious Jesus Christ is, how awesome the gospel is, that it saves sinners like me, and and this is our first guideline. Anybody who has true wisdom is going to be able to understand that what Paul is teaching us here is right, it is good, it is correct. It's also from the Lord. 
Only foolish people, you see, run headlong into destruction that is caused by sin. Let me repeat that. Only foolish people run headlong into the destruction that is caused by sin. And yes, that is, I am calling some people fools. Not me, the Bible. It's the Bible. So listen, when it comes to exercising uh, liberty, when it comes to exercising Christian liberty in the gray areas, the Bible gives us direction. Okay, It doesn't say do this, do that about every single thing. About dancing and about you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, all the different things that we've talked about before. Okay, in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So what do we do in those gray areas where we don't have Scripture telling us exactly what to do? Well, we employ this first guideline. And the first guideline is that we would run away from corrupting influences. Things that will turn into idols. Anything that's going to corrupt our walk with the Lord is a potential idol in the heart. And we need to learn to leave it behind. We should really run away from it. We should not hang around it. Whether it's a person, whether it's an activity, or whether it is a substance, if it will get in the way of our fellowship, our relationship with the Lord and with His people, then we need to get away from it, church. We need to run from it. In verse 16, Paul begins to speak now about the symbolism and the significance of the ordinance of communion. And this fits into the theme of eating meals together, which, as you remember, has been at the very center of the controversy about Christian liberty that Paul has been talking about. So verse 16 says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Paul now is leading our thoughts to the connection between the physical and the spiritual. And he's referring to the Lord's Supper. He's saying, listen, it's not just a physical meal. It has a connection. It's a spiritually unifying meal. That Greek word for communion in verse 16 is the word koinonia, which I'm sure if you've been going to church for any amount of time, you've heard that word, koinonia. And it means fellowship or or oneness. Okay, It speaks of unity. So the bread and the cup of the Lord's Supper When we come to church and we have communion, that bread, that cup, it is actually meant to bring about a spiritual unity in your life. First with the Lord and next with the body of Christ. Each other. We become unified. And so you can see why it's so important, guys. You know, my heart often breaks as a pastor when I see Christians who don't partake of communion together. They say, no, I'm not good enough, or no, I'm not in the right place. Now, if you're living in unrepentant sin, if you're refusing to repent from a sin that you know about, yeah, don't take communion, please, because you'll be eating and drinking God's judgment upon your own life, the Bible teaches. And you should repent before you take the communion. But if you're like most Christians and you struggle with sin, like I do and like many of us do, we're not living in sin, but man, we fall from time to time in sin, but we confess and we repent and we keep moving forward. Hey, then we should all be taking communion together because that's who the Lord came to save. Jesus didn't come to save the righteous. He came to save sinners. And I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. 
And we need Jesus, the bread and the blood. We need to come and say, Jesus, your body, your blood which was shed for me, I need this. I need you. And we take that together and we're spiritually unified with Christ as well as each other. It's a spiritual connection. Paul continues in verse 17. He says, for though we, for we, though many are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. You see what happens, Paul's saying? There's this koinonia, there's this oneness that happens. It's a spiritual thing. And it happens through the Lord's Supper. He's talking, he's really making a reference to Jewish and Middle Eastern culture, which we sometimes don't understand here in the West. But to sit down in Middle Eastern culture and Jewish culture to share a meal together, that was one of the most intimate expressions you could have with another person. You would, uh, you would eat around a low table that was reclining, uh, you know, there a low table that you'd have to recline on your left elbow. You'd put your left elbow inside on a kind of a cushion or a pillow. Your feet would be away from the table. We actually did this when we were in Israel this year in March. We ate at Abraham's tent. We had a tent dinner. And, and the fir- food was all served, served, I can't talk this morning, on these low tables. And we would lay down, and I laid down like this, and with my right hand, I was reaching onto the table and taking the food and breaking it in pieces and dipping it in the different sauces that were there on the table. My head was right next to my wife, Rebecca, so I could kind of lean it back and put it on her lap, you know? Felt like the Apostle John for a minute, you know? Not that she's Jesus at all, but, you know, it's pretty close. But, but it was so much fun to eat like that. But in, in the Middle Eastern culture, they would take that bread and eat it, and they would take a bite... And then, you know, their saliva would get on the bread, and then it would go back in the sauce, and they'd dip it again, you know, and take another. And so everybody's saliva, you were, you were swapping spit at these Middle Eastern meals, okay? Now, we were, I was tearing little chunks off, you know, and doing it properly, you know, it's that way, no contamination, right? But that was the, the intimacy of this sharing of a meal. You shared saliva in a roundabout way. Paul takes that concept He applies it now to the Lord's Supper, and he says, when we as Christians, when we come to the table, we're all eating of the same loaf. We're all drinking of the same fruit of the vine. And as that same piece that enters you, it's also entering me. That same juice is entering you, it's also entering me. And it symbolizes this oneness, this unity, first with Jesus, and then secondly with each other as a result. Now, Paul will again turn to Israel in verse 18 and use them as an example to teach the concepts behind the Lord's Supper to us. In verse 18, he says, Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? Now, that is a reference there to the sacrifices found in the book of Leviticus. When the Israelites would bring their burnt offerings and their peace offerings to the tabernacle, back in the book of Leviticus there, uh, they would be giving part of the offering to the priest that would be burned on the altar. And that burning on the altar, the the smell of cooked meat would be rising in their presence and the smoke would go up in the presence of God in that tabernacle. So part of it would be burned up in the presence of God. But the other part was taken and it was cooked by the priests and by the family and eaten together in the house of the Lord or in a holy place. And so there was a point there of uh, there was a spiritual connection to that meal there was fellowship with God that was taking place the physical meal has spiritual meaning and it was considered to be holy 
by eating the sacrifice from the altar of God, they were having fellowship with God. I hope that means something to you. Because when we take communion later on this morning, we're going to be having fellowship with Jesus Christ and with one another simply by eating that meal together. Paul continues in verse 19. He says, what am I saying then? That an idol is anything or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things that the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. So he's talking, he's, he, now he's bringing it around. There's a spiritual connection from the Lord's Supper to God. But there's also spiritual connection with these feasts in the pagan temples to demonic influences. Look at, uh, uh, in, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32, verse 16 and 17, it'll be on the screen. We read this from Israel's history. It says that they provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to God, to gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. I bring that up to show us, that's the verse that Paul is referring to in this passage. And he's teaching us that, listen, while the idol is not anything, hey, there can be demonic activity behind them. And behind these corrupting influences, there may be demons who are oppressing and influencing. In fact, if we believe what our Bibles teach us, that's exactly what this is saying. So, what can we relate this to in our modern day Christianity? How can we apply this passage that the physical is connected to the spiritual, to things that we're doing today, things that we're facing today? Well, one of the issues that I thought of is the issue of marijuana. Uh, if you have not been paying attention to the news, uh, this is something that, in my opinion, within 10 to 15 years, every state in the United States of America will be legalizing marijuana. It's something that we as Christians are going to have to face. Christians in California, Nevada, Oregon, uh, Washington, D.C., and Colorado are already facing these questions and these choices. And we need to realize something here. I believe that these mind-altering substances, things that can take control and warp and alter and change the brain, hey, they are dangerous. And it is possible that we might open ourselves up to demonic influences through them. Just because something becomes lawful does not mean it's edifying and good. And we need to realize that there is always going to be a connection between the physical and the spiritual. Now, I'm not saying that marijuana couldn't be useful for medical purposes. I'm definitely not a doctor, and I can't really speak to that very effectively. I believe that it's possible. I believe that it could be. But uh, as far as spiritually speaking, as a pastor, I see this all the time, guys. I see how people open themselves up to influences that in turn take control over their minds and bodies and become idols in their lives. They become passionate about that thing, that substance, and it takes the place of their fellowship with the Lord. And when that happens, hey, we're in trouble. You're in trouble. And, and Paul is saying, listen, if you truly want to remain free and enjoy the freedom for which Christ has set you free, you've got to learn to run away from these corrupting influences because you could be opening yourself up to oppression and influence from demons. In the case of the Israelites... They were led astray into an ever-increasing immorality and a sinfulness which led to unbelief. 
Church, we have to be careful. The way that America deals with problems like drugs, if you can't beat them, you join them. And you turn it into a lucrative business. And that's what marijuana is becoming. It's generating billions of dollars of profit all across these states. And, and, and you will see it. You will see it coming. And you're going to have to face that choice. Many of you are already facing that choice just in an unlawful way. <laughs> you know, we know that marijuana is illegal here in Texas still. But many of you are faced with that choice right now. Well, heed the warning of Scripture, guys. Listen to what it's telling us. There's a connection between the physical and the spiritual. So be careful and run from things that are corrupting influences. Verse 21, Paul says it plain and simple. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? Let's pause right there for a minute. Paul just lays it down. Hey, you can't serve two masters. you got to make up your minds. You can't have one foot in the world and one foot in church. Because eventually, you'll be led astray by the corruption to the world, or you'll be broken and you're going to be all in for God. That's the thing, guys. That's what God did in my life. I was the guy with one foot trying to live in the world and the other foot trying to be in church. And I was miserable. So convicted all the time. My conscience just red flags going off all the time. And I was a miserable Christian trying to be, you know, in the world and yet have joy, be in the church at the same time. I didn't have joy. I wasn't experiencing freedom. I was the most shackled and enslaved person at that time in my life. But God brought me to a place where I woke up one day and I said, you know what? I, I got to do, do something. And God, I remember God speaking to me and challenging me and saying, Phil, if, if, if I'm real in your life, then, then you need to live for me all in. If I'm not, you need to just go for it in the world, but stop calling yourself a Christian, but go for it. Whatever you're going to do, make up your mind and go for it. And that's how the Lord was speaking to me. It's that, that whole moment in my life where you've got to uh, choose this day whom you will serve. And then once you've made up your mind, man, go for it. Now, it's interesting to note that Paul there in chapter 8, if you remember, Paul in chapter 8, he told us that eating meat that was sacrificed to idols was nothing. Now, here in these verses, he seems to be making an issue out of it. I, I, and as I was studying this, I asked myself the question, you know, did Paul change his stance? Did he, is he now contradicting himself from what he said in chapter 8? But... The answer is no, he's not contradicting himself. The issue here is not the meat, but rather the meeting place where the meat was being eaten. Buying the meat in the marketplace and cooking it up at home is nothing like this nice Kobe beefsteak that you see on the screen. Look at that marbling, it's amazing. Could I get an amen this morning? Could I get a hallelujah? Man, praise the Lord for that meat. You know, Paul doesn't change his stance on the meat. It's still okay to get that and cook it at home. However, it's about the meeting place where it's being eaten. Going with the unbelievers to the feasts in the pagan temples was putting themselves in harm's way. It was all about not the meat, but the meeting place. E eating it there and opening themselves up to the influence of demons. It was about the company that was being kept while this was being practiced. Listen. The meals were 
in the temples where demonic influences were present could potentially lead these Christians into sinful practices and lifestyles that would lead to more and more immorality in their lives and would lead to bondage under sin. Christ has set us free from that. And we are to escape from these things that would only destroy us. I praise God that we have the freedom of making a choice. The freedom to escape. There are some in this world, they don't have a choice. Man, when that sin and that temptation is presented, they have no choice but to dive in headlong because they're enslaved to sin. But Christ has set us free that we might not be destroyed. Think of it in this way. If, if a couple of you ladies were excited about something that was happening, maybe uh, your best friend, uh, she's been asked out on a date by a guy. And so you ladies are having a conversation about that. And while you're talking on the phone, let's say that you happen to be watching the news when up flashes a picture of the FBI's most wanted list. And lo and behold, on that list, there's the face of the guy that you saw asking your best friend out to dinner. You would immediately say, oh, by the way, I don't think you should go out with that guy. I think he's very dangerous. I just saw his face on America's most wanted list. Now, if your friend said to you at that point, oh, stop it. You're just jealous that I've got a date. You would say, hey, you're failing to understand something here. I'm not jealous of you having a date. I'm jealous for your well-being. I'm jealous for you that you would be safe from this. That's the sense in which we can provoke God to jealousy. When we have given ourselves to God in a covenant of faith based on grace in Jesus Christ, and then we say, you know what? That covenant's meaningless to me. I'm going to turn my back on God and go run over here and do my thing. Hey, you're provoking God to jealousy, not of the demons, but for your well-being. God cares about you. He loves you. He has a great plan for your life. And he's not going to sit back and let you destroy it. He loves you too much for that. He's going to come after you. And guess what? God will do whatever's necessary to bring you back to him. I call it rubber band theology. You know, you can stretch that rubber band only so far before, boom, it comes right back to where it needs to be, right? And the further you stretch it, the further you get away, the harder it's going to snap back, guys. So just repent now and just, you know, flee from, flee from those things. God set you free from that to come back to him. He's not going to let you get too far or, or you know, He'll do whatever's necessary to bring you back, is what I'm trying to say. Now, our second guideline, our second guideline for freedom, is that we are also free from non-edifying activities. If you're filling in the blanks, it's non-edifying activities. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 23 tells us, All things are lawful for me, for not all things are helpful I'm sorry, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. This is our second guideline for being the freest people in the world. It's based on the principle found in verse 23. Paul says that all things are lawful for anyone who is in Christ. 
Jesus Christ has set us free. Therefore, all things are lawful. There is nothing in this world that can condemn the believer or separate you from Christ. Any created thing, I should say. There's no created thing that can separate you from Jesus Christ. Praise God for that. So all things are lawful. However, not all things are going to build me up. Not all things are going to be good or helpful for you. Now the application of that principle is there in verse 24. Instead of putting myself above everyone else, I'm to be a person who's putting Jesus and others before my own selfish pride and my desires. What does that mean? Well, let, let's come back to our marijuana example. That's my horse that I'm beating this morning in my sermon. My dead horse, I'm sorry, that I'm beating. I don't beat horses. Just don't, don't put that on Facebook. Um, I beat dead horses when I preach, though, sometimes. You guys all know that. But, but let's go back to marijuana smoking. Let's say that you, you feel you have the right to do that. Let's say that, you know, at some eventual date, it's approved in the, in the state of Texas, and so you have that lawful right to do that. And yet, let's say that your mom and dad see that that is destroying your life. Are you going to put your desire and something that's lawful to you above the desires of the people around you that see what is best for you? Are you going to uh, be a person that, uh, you know, puts that before your wife and your kids or before your family? Man, that's what Paul is talking about. Listen, it, this, this is what it means that not all things are good and not all things are helpful and, and, and edifying. There are things that, hey, they could be lawful, but they're going to tear you down eventually. They're going to chip away at the foundation of God in your life, and they're going to eventually leave you stranded in the middle of nowhere, completely destroyed. And because of that, God has set you free from those things, and he's given you the freedom to say, you know what, I'm going to say no to non-edifying things in my life. And instead of putting myself first and my selfish motives first, and my desire really to just smoke this marijuana for the glory of God, I'm going to put that aside and say, you know what, God, I'm going to see that this is causing problems in my relationships, it's causing problems with the church, it's causing problems in my relationship with you. And because of that, I'm going to lay it aside because it doesn't build me up. It's actually tearing me down. It's tearing down my family. It's tearing down my relationship with you, God. And so I've got to put it aside. And that could apply to anything, obviously. Anything that is not building you up, but is rather leading you down. Okay? So remember that. That's the principle. If you want to stay free, for which God has set you free, God, Christ has set you free, this is the way we do it. We apply this principle in our lives of being free from non-edifying activity. Uh, Paul gives us an example of what it means. He gives us a practical example from their day of how to do that. Verse 25. He says, Eat whatever is sold in the, mar- in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. I love that. Hey, Meat is just meat. It's the, the, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, it's all His, guys. So, so treat it that way. It's not, you don't have to treat everything as if it was you know, bad for you. Verse 27. But then he says, If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, This was offered to idols... Do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you, and for conscience' sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Again, 
Paul is, is, is giving an example here of how to apply Christian liberty, when not to, when to. He says, if someone makes a point, and, and the context, notice there, it's an unbeliever. Verse 26 says, someone who does not believe invites you to dinner. So if an unbeliever, you're hanging out with them, and they make it a point to tell you, hey, uh, by the way, that drink there, it's got alcohol content in it. And they're saying that because they want to see how you're going to react as a Christian. Hey, put it back. You know what? I'll just drink something else. The whole earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So I can find something that's good and this cooler of drinks. I can find something else to drink and there's not going to be a problem. And in that way, I'm going to make sure I don't put a stumbling block in this guy's life who might be looking to find Jesus, who might need Jesus desperately. You don't want to provide an unbeliever with that stumbling block in their life that would keep them from coming to know the Lord, Paul says. So not for your sake. You know that it's all lawful for you. Not that you're going to go get drunk. We know that that's not lawful. That's a sin that would lead us into corruption. But, but we know that, hey, we have that freedom in Christ. Everybody's going to be different on that. I'm not going to go into that. You can go back and listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 if you want to know uh, more about that. But listen... We need to be sensitive to the conscience of other people, Paul is telling us, and especially to the unbeliever. We don't want to be the one who is responsible for putting a stumbling block in front of somebody that keeps them from coming to know the Lord. Instead, we can suggest a different activity. We can eat or drink something different because after all, Paul says, hey, God's given us the whole earth. Man, I hate it when Christians get all focused in on one thing that we can't do. Oh, we just can't do that, you know, can't do this, can't do that. And it's all about the what we don't do. Listen, guys, Paul says, the whole earth belongs to the Lord. Everything in it, go find something that you can do and run after that and have a good time. That's what it means to give glory to God with our lives. Verse 29, Paul continues, Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? He's raising a question here. But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? Paul's raising the objection from the Corinthian church standpoint. They're, 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 they would be asking these questions. You know, why am I getting judged? Why is, you know, I give thanks for it. Why am I evil spoken for? Listen, Paul tells them the reasons why they need to put that aside when they're in that mixed company. And he tells them, uh, and that's our third point today, in the last three verses of the chapter, he says that we're free to live for God's glory. Free to live for God's glory. And look at verse 31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. So guys, if you're raising that question and saying, why am I getting judged here? I know I have the freedom to do this. It's not bothering my conscience. Why do they get to speak evil of me? I'm just doing things that I know I have liberty to do. Hey, Paul says, hey, put it in check. Put it in check and realize that you need to be living for God's glory. You don't want to be the one that's hindering other people from coming to know Jesus Christ. So put yourself off of the throne Take yourself down off that throne, guys, and allow Jesus Christ to be the one who's on the throne. You know, Paul finishes this chapter with, with just a great exhortation for us. 
to live free in such a way that our lives actually adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything in our lives is to be connected to the one supreme passion of our lives. Guys, the gospel cannot be precious to you. It cannot be the supreme passion of your life until you know from what you have been saved. Until you recognize what sin is and what sin does. And the corruption, the influence that it can have in our lives. When you realize that Jesus Christ sets you free and saves you from that sin, the penalty, the power, and the presence eventually when we go to heaven, hey, Jesus Christ becomes so precious to us. And we realize, I've got a purpose. I'm on a mission to get the gospel of Jesus Christ out to as many people as possible. And how am I going to do that? Well, God has got to show me. God is going to use me in his way according to my personality and my giftings and the things that he's done in my life. But every single one of us should adopt this, this idea that, hey, I'm going to live for the glory of God. To do this, guys, we have to enjoy God, don't we? That's what living for God's glory means. It means that we enjoy him. Do you know that the chief purpose of your life, according to the scriptures, is that you would enjoy God and his creation, and by doing so, you would give glory to God? That your life would be a life that gives God glory for the way that it's being lived? People would look at you and they would go, man, what's with that guy or what's with that girl? She's filled with joy. She's living her life to the full. She's got something or he's got something that I want in my life. That's how we bring God glory. We enjoy him. We enjoy his creation. And we point others to him. And you can't do that. You cannot do that unless you know God. And the only way to know God this morning is through his son, Jesus Christ, who came to show us what God is like. He came to die on the cross for your sins and for mine. And he didn't stay dead. Three days later, after being buried, he rose again. He came out of that tomb and he became the world's freest person. The world's freest person. And today he's in heaven. He ascended into heaven where he is right now, living in the full freedom that God intends for you and for me. And this morning he's calling you. He's calling you to put your faith, to put your trust, and to put your life in his hands. Because he has a great plan for you, the best plan. He wants to set you free so that you can live this kind of life that Paul is describing here. Free from corrupting influences, free from non, or unedifying activities, and free to live for God with all you got. Let's pray.